Hi, I'm your host, James Barrow, a creative turned marketing director with over 20 years' experience in the advertising industry. Join me as I go behind the scenes with a range of innovative thinkers. Hear what inspires them, their processes, and the methods to their madness. Find insights that can help unlock your creative potential and apply them in your life, career, and business. Right here on The B-Side with James Barrow. I'm on a boat, and I'm on a boat with Ali Nasseri, Sophie Paulin, and Matt Newell. And these are some of the most creative people you'll ever meet. We happen to be in the middle of Sydney Harbour, and it kind of goes with our theme of going with the flow and just freestyling, essentially. And they say water is conducive to creativity. So why don't we just run with this? We are literally on a boat. Say hi. Hi, everyone. Hi, James. You know what? It's... So James and I have actually met digitally, and this is the first time we've met in person. Yes, indeed. And we were part of the Optimist. It's a very elite little group of people that um, try and take an optimistic p- uh, a view of life and living life to its fullest. Ali's here as well. Ali, would you like to jump in? We've only got two mics, which is quite amateur. Well, hello, everyone. Oh, look at those dulcet tones. Now, we are going to freestyle a little bit today. This is the first episode I've done since we've all come out of lockdown. We're not going to harp on about lockdown. We're not going to harp on about COVID-19. It's not what this episode's about. It's about sticking with that theme of the optimists. What does 2022 look like? And um, what are some of the enduring things that may have shifted the way we consume media or create it? So let's do a quick kickoff. Maybe we just start with you, Soph. Where, where are you from? What do you do? Why are you awesome? Well, not awesome yet, but it's funny with the lockdown thing. As we were talking about this morning, someone said to me, it was a quote, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. And I actually think that sums up lockdown quite a bit. So I, I work in marketing. I'm in Sydney. Um, you know, I work in tech, in hospitality. And, you know, we have the health workers on the front line. And from a business perspective, you know, the hospitality is on the front line. So for me, you know, watching the hospitality industry go up and down and everything they've had to deal with, you know, it's been really tough. So I think everyone has their own story. I think COVID has meant different things for different people. You know, it's hard being at home. It's nice being at home. The one thing I hope is that we take the good that has come out of COVID and I hope we leave behind the bad. And I think that's the only thing that we can really hope for. Uh, we're jumping out the gates. All I asked you was where you're from. And you gave you this whole, the podcast is done. Sorry, Ali. sorry, mate. We're, we're done now, man. We are. We are. We are on a boat. It's very. It's fluid. We're on a boat. We're it's on a fluid. Boat. And we're freezing. Ali, do you want to jump in there? We're we're sharing two mics today, so um, it is very amateur of me. Once I make a bit more money, and once I get some sponsors, I might be able to afford definitely a few more another mics. mic. But where are you from, Ali? And what do you do? And um, how has this COVID affected you? Well, um. Uh, where am I from? I don't know. What does that mean? That doesn't mean born? anything. That means, I mean, no, no, not where you're from. Okay. Uh, what you, what's your background? Uh, uh, I, well, I can go from the beginning. Yeah, yeah, I was yeah. born in here. <laughs> um, yeah. I'm from Iran. Grew up in Canberra. Came to Sydney. I'm a photographer. Oh, sorry, man. <laughs> the Canberra bit? <laughs> yeah. Just Why is that about Canberra? Well, at least it's not Queen. It's a very at least it's not beautiful Queen. place, at least actually. It's not Queen yeah. Oh, Queen I actually yeah, thought you, know you meant Queen the photographer bit. What? You, well, you I can't do it about the freestyle. So it's sort of like photography's just, awesome, man. Oh, it is awesome. What a great job, honestly. Oh, it is. Why is it a great job? Well, I looked into filmmaking of, of late and can comparison. It's just like, oh, 
what a beautiful thing. One little tiny I have in my um in my uh, let's just say studio, <laughs> even though it's a third bedroom in my house, but let's just say studio. Um I've got this picture and it's of this um box brownie, which is a Kodak camera. It's just mm. a box with a lens, that's all it was. And um and I've got it on this little crappy tripod and I've got taken this picture on it with a very expensive five four camera, but I've got it on my wall and it's just, it's always like, I just go, I just, I call it like youthful ignorance because it's like, I look at this camera and go like, you stupid, can I be rude, can I swear? Yeah, you can swear your head off. You stupid motherfucker, you think you can make money out of this? But you Mm. can and photography is amazing, just a little tiny camera and it's like a whole world. I love the way you drew the parallels between filmmaking and photography. And I've always thought of photographers being at the purest form of visual storytelling. You have to tell a story in one frame and that's all you've got. Do you know, and I love that. We were getting quite philosophical earlier on and we, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. One of the philosophical quotes from the great philosophical thinker, Mike Tyson, there's a Japanese philosophy of ichigeki. Do it well, do it once. And I think the literal translation is a little bit more morbid. It's like one hit, one kill. Yeah, Ichigeki. Right. If you had to tell a story in one frame, how would you do it? That's really interesting because with photography, you've got at least three different types of cameras. So you've got your 35mm camera, your medium format camera, and your large format camera. Now, your large format camera, you load in a sheet. And once you've loaded in that sheet, you cannot refocus it, you cannot reframe it, it goes black, you can't see anything else. And that is a one-click camera. Like by default, by mechanism, it's a one-click camera. And if you want to take another click, you've got to put the dark side back in the film, take the film out, open the lens, wow. refocus. So look, literally, it's literally one-click camera. One-click, and that's wow. the whole point of it. And so wow. I, actually I, I – when I finally became comfortable with portrait photography was from using that camera because I assisted other photographers and some of the photographers I assisted were, they had charisma in their own particular way. And I always thought I can never be like these guys. They just, there's one guy in particular would mesmerize the person in front of the camera and he mm. would shoot digital and he would shoot. He, they, they were in a trance. Volume, yeah. yeah. They, they'd shoot volume, but he would just get a norm, anyone, a normal anyone to do anything he wanted to, almost like hypnosis. It was amazing. No kidding. It was amazing. But I was like, I can't do this. <laughs> There's no chance of me doing this. And with, so I kind of actually started with a large format camera just going, okay, let me compose that portrait. Let it be a moment that I can experience first yeah. and then click second. As yeah. opposed to 35 mil, which is click it as you're feeling it. It's very fluid. It's click mm. it as you're feeling it, see what happens. 5.4 is very still, very posed, very composed. Mm. Now, so talk to me a little bit about what you do uh, from a day-to-day perspective as far as your work and why you're passionate about this field of tech and, and where it's uh, heading. I work for Automentum. We're a tech company. We work in food and beverage. We work in hospitality. And we're an ordering platform and we just, we just try and simplify the process of a venue ordering from their suppliers. And that's it for this. We started off trying to simplify it for the suppliers and now we're trying to simplify it for the venue. So we work in hospitality. And you guys have been impacted by COVID quite significantly. Oh, massively. And what were some of the immediate things? I guess I don't want to harp on about it too long. How quickly it happened. So hospitality, it's like, okay, we're locked down. And then so within 24 hours, we saw a 50% drop. So our our revenue, like to talk about our revenue as a business, is based on orders between suppliers and venues. Hmm. So our, our revenue dropped 50% overnight. Um, and that was just when hospitality was shut down. So, you know, massive. We went down, we had to drop from about 40 to 9. We took lights on. Um, so, yeah, we were... Definitely at the forefront, but we were 
you know, we were the tech, we were a supplier of the hospitality industry. Mm. So, you know, we went on the front line, like opening the restaurants, turning up, you know, even the the venues in Australia that had to quickly flip to takeaway, flip to yeah. home meals, flip to, you know, uh, everything from check-ins and, you know, the, what we've had to ask of them. Yeah, so it was big. I loved the way some of these established businesses adapted their offering to more than home delivery or make it home or so on. I found it quite, quite interesting. I'm a massive fan and they're not a sponsor of Rising Sun Workshop and they did this oh, yeah. uh, make ramen at home sort of kits and so on. Um, and, and I found that quite interesting. I mean, it demystifies a lot of it, but at the same time, it sort of makes you really appreciate what goes into their, their produce. Ali, how did this affect you from a, a photographic perspective? You work for a wide range of industries, um, fashion, education, and so on. How has it shifted? And again, like this will be the last question I ask about COVID. I'd like to look forward. How, but how did it affect you? And- um, the, the best thing for me was actually, I was, well, it was very quiet. <laughs> and, uh, in the quiet time, I thought, well, let's just go past, go through the last 10 years of, um, my personal work. Nothing I've done for work, but for my personal stuff. And I just went through negatives from the last 10 years and went through everything, re-selected and then regraded it. And it was just really nice to, it kind of like, it made me think of what, see, now when you've got, like the older generation of photographers are people that we, I would look up to who are now in their 60s and 70s. They're all just putting out retrospectives of their stuff. And it's like a bit early for me to be going through my stuff, but I went through, it was, but it was really good because I was unsure of which, particularly which format to move forward with. And I thought, oh, let me look at what, it, what is it? And it was actually like a really beautiful time to like look over everything. And, and, and the thing for me is just, um, I've, I just, uh, I don't know, my own photography, it's really lame to say, but I don't know if it's lame to say or it's really good to say, but my own photography brings me a lot of happiness. I look over my own work and I'm like, oh, I'm so glad that I shot that, like that I took that picture. That There's this one particular picture in Malta where there's these, um, there's this like 60s, the guys in their 60s and 70s, they're just cutting up a um, watermelon um, on a beach and I've walked up to them and I've gone, I remember going up to them, I can't speak Maltese, and I've gone up to them, somehow I've managed to get in and, and take that photograph and interact with them and it's a beautiful moment and um, and I had never, I never showed that photograph in the last 10 years to, you know, on my website that maybe not maybe we'll see anyway, but I never showed that photograph because it was like, oh, no, no, no. but it was just nice to go over everything. So a quiet time, but, um, it actually made me think about how, um, you know, like a lot of my clients are art directors and advertising, art directors or creative directors or um, in some way um, artists that got into the um, advertising industry in one way, form or another. And I just, you know, it's just, I guess um, it just was really nice to look back on work that's like your own work as opposed to commissioned work and not rely completely on commissioned work as to be your be all and end all. Because if I was just to look at my commission work in the last, you know, year, I'd be like depressed. Mm-hmm. Well, you're in a really lucky space and and it it triggered quite a few topical things for me in that there's a lot of talk around the great resignation, you know, and it's because people have been in lockdown for a long time. They've got a lot of time to sit with their own thoughts and question whether the roles they're in are really satisfying the need for something bigger, satisfying the need for um, true purpose. What would you say to people who want to take that leap, who may want to be photographers or who knows? I mean, 
uh, the fashion designers or whatnot, you know? Well, I, I can only say it for myself, but what I found is I can't answer the question. Well, when I answer the question of why do I do what I do, it's just a very simple personal question, which is just like, I just like going on the adventures and taking the photographs. So then my next question for myself is like, okay, but what do you end up taking photographs of? I'm drawn to moments where I guess there's some truth in some beautiful human feeling. Mm. That's mm. what I shoot. If Ali is using the camera as his vehicle to connect with audiences, the tool to connect with audiences. You're using technology to connect with audiences and ultimately to allow them to achieve whatever it is that they aim to achieve, you know. James, I think you nail it when you talk about connection. So it's, Mm. you know, and even working in marketing and digital and advertising, you know, I was always, you know, for many years I wasn't at peace because it was like, oh, you work in advertising and, you know, you're the fuel that's driving consumerism. And, you know, I was kind of, I, I didn't sit well with that. And then you kind of think about it as connection. And I think that's where, for me, technology is, you know, where we've gone wrong, but the opportunity. Mm. You know, one of my favourite quotes ever is, you know, the internet promised to save the world and all it gave us was 140 characters, you know. <laughs> you know, and it was like you yeah. had the best minds you know, working on how to get you to click, you mm. know, and that was just, you know, heartbreaking. Mm. And, you know, I, I know we, we want to talk about the, the future, but that's the biggest thing like this. You know, I talk about the internet and it's still so young, this technology, and it does have the ability to connect everyone and to connect the world. And I think, you know, talk about pandemics in 2022, we're finally at the stage where we understand how it works. And yes, we... You know, it's gone through its teens and, you know, we can forgive it. But finally, the internet is at a place where we can connect everyone through one language. You know, this is the first time ever that we can actually talk to each other and language isn't a barrier. Zero and one, that's all it is. And we can talk to the world and we can actually connect for the first time. And I hope that that is what COVID has brought globally Yes, we've gone through up and downs and it's like we've used it for characters and for clickbait and cats and dogs. And, yeah, I love the memes too. I share them all the time. But, you know, I hope that's finally we're at a stage where we can use the technology for what it was built for and it was Mm. to connect people. That's a really, really, really good thing to sit with for a bit. And I, it reminded me, you you mentioned the word teenager. Um, I, I kind of... Imagine the internet was a teenager and it was dropped off onto an island of people who had no internet and they're looking at this teenager with suspicion. And I kind of feel like that's where we're at now. We're looking at this stranger and obviously the stranger can either take advantage of our suspicions and pretend it's a god and it's going to solve all the problems. It's like this Chariots of the God, Eric Von Daniken style thing where this teenager comes down and I'm a god. Or the teenager can just go, I don't quite know what I'm doing either, but I'm just here and this is kind of, you've called for me and you've kind of created me and, 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 and yeah, I might be a young technology. I might be a stranger and I know you're scared, but I'm really about connecting you guys. You know, and I kind of feel like that's where we're at with the internet. Like it's this suspicious, strange thing that we're grappling with and we're trying to understand. And, and yeah, you've got these people who, these assholes who create dark patterns with UX and stuff and manipulate you and nudge you to click and stuff like that. But they're still swimming around the little shallow end of the pool. These charlatans, they're just, but really, if you look at the, 
the, the positivity that the internet has brought through education and access to education and, and access to abilities to the, the technologies to be able to maintain your business, you know? And so the internet has brought us so many wonderful things. And I kind of feel, feel like, yeah, but it's still, there's that, there's still that suspicion that permeates a lot of it. But I wonder if COVID has somehow helped negate some of that. So imagine you asked your grandmother five years ago to use a QR code. She would have no no idea what to what to do. So it's really interesting. Do you think culture has shifted to a point where it has created a different school of uh, capturing visual stories? So if you're going to chime in here, I know you can't wait. But NFTs and photography, right? Now, uh, yeah. now we're talking. Now we'll move into the future, right? Now we'll start shifting into the future. COVID's behind us now. It has changed. We're not quite sure exactly how it's changed. Would you be up for digitizing some of your – because I know you love to shoot the Ichigeki, the one shot, one kills, and, and, and every photo tells a beautiful, unique story. How would you feel about monetizing that through technology like NFTs and giving someone the complete copyright to that one image? Um, look, I have a very particular understanding of NFTs, but I do come to it from an economic point of view. Economics, um, I do have an economics degree. I do come from that point of view and from the art point of view and knowing that the most recent exhibition I had, I made them one of three. Uh-huh. And so right. I come right. to the NFT. Sorry, that was just so- Matt. We're going to interview Matt later on, but he really interrupted <laughs> us. This is his boat, but um, we've, we've taken control, so it's fine. <laughs> um, so... So for me, what NFT does for a digital art, for a reproducible art form, unlike a, a, a sculpture or a painting, what NFT does is it gives you, for the first time, the ability to own one of one. Because previously, if I wanted to say, this is the only print of this photograph. The reproducible art forms are etchings, photography, screen prints, right? Mm-hmm. The non-reproducible art forms are you know, sculpture and painting and so on. A video is a reproducible art form because you can just make a copy of it. So within reproducible art forms, it's very, very hard to give someone ownership of one of one. Mm-hmm. And I think what NFT does is gives you ownership of one of one. The other aspect of NFT, which is really confusing to get your head around, is that the owner of the NFT doesn't give a shit whether you have copies copies of that one of one exist in the world and if the copies of that one of one are identical they don't really care because they still own one of one mm-hmm. and that's that's the value of it so would i put my work on nfts absolutely but i'm not one of those artists that has created value out of owning one of one that's like mm-hmm. a bill henson the question is will ben bill henson and his galleries consider creating an nft of a unique piece of artwork that isn't mm. then also sold in editions in the gallery. Mm. That's the that's the question. For, for someone like me, I'm I'm not in the art space selling my artworks mm. in galleries in that way. Mm. I could put my artworks at NFTs one one on one, but it doesn't really make any difference to value. Do you know of any photographers who are really seriously considering the one of one approach or or in terms of NFTs? Yeah, yeah. Um, look, I think people are spluttering their stuff all over the internet with NFTs, and then you'll have like anomalies coming up and saying, "Oh wow, look, it's really working. You should do that." But mm-hmm. I think it's just like anything else. Is mm-hmm. I think the the core of it is to understand why people's five thousand days. Sold for $68 million. Mm, yeah. If, 
Yeah. Can 69. I, can, 69. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. <laughs> can I just say, remember Wu-Tang Clan put out that oh. album and they produced one copy of it and it sold for something like fucking, I don't know what it was, like millions and millions and millions, hundreds of millions of dollars. And one Saudi prince bought it. I can't remember who bought it, but someone bought it. Someone with an incredible amount of wealth. And you go, man, they were ahead of the time because that, that is like exactly. an album length NFT that was produced 20, 15 years ago, something like that. So what are your thoughts on um, NFTs and, and where, where do we go? What does it mean? We'll get to the, the metaverse and Facebook's recent name change and, and uh, shift and focus towards an all-encompassing content world and universe. But anyway, NFTs. NFTs. I think, uh, you know, Ali Ali's an artist and his photography is – beautiful and amazing and I often say I'll steal it and uh, sell it on and make NFTs and make a lot of money. But (laughs) honestly, it's just the beginning and Mm. I just think that we need to start shifting the mindset. We have gone so long, you know, almost taking advantage of artists. And I actually know as a as a marketer, you know, being hardcore, you know, conversion rate optimization, A-B split testing, you know, I need to get from 25% conversion rate to 27% to 28% and you test photography, test images. And I think NFT is starting to change people's perception that value can be in digital form. Hmm. And I think this could be our chance to actually help artists make money for what they create. 10 to 15 years ago when like Facebook and the digital, you know, digital transformation was all happening and the strategy was just to get onto digital, right? That mm-hmm. was the strategy. Mm-hmm. And now everyone's there. We're all mm-hmm. at the same place. And now it's like, okay, we're all in digital. We're mm-hmm. all on the internet. Everyone's here. We're all at the party. What do we do now? And NFTs are the kind of, you know, maybe the first way to actually work out where the value is stored. That's a really good point, yeah. Do you think that will put more emphasis, and it's a question for both of you, um, more emphasis on the quality of the content? At the moment, we're seeing a lot of NFTs that look like dog shit, to be honest. Like, there's a lot of stuff out there that are just really basic memes. I'm thinking, to your point, and going back to that analogy of being in the teenage phase, we're in like the infantile phase of NFTs. We're finger painting with NFTs at the moment. Do you think it will get to a point where the market will become a little more sophisticated, a little more cultured, and they will value the stuff that is not just because of novelty value, that is actually genuinely good. And that will mean the cream rises to the top. And it's not these freak anomalies that just end up selling for millions and millions of dollars. No, I think that, you know, the last kind of 10 to 15 years is this time where it's like it's all been about the technology and the data and Mm -hmm. it's like, okay, Mm -hmm. even targeting, it's like, oh, I'm going to target you. Oh, my gosh, I can target you. It's so good. But now we're going back to the idea, to the art. Everyone has access to everyone. I can target target you. I can Mm -hmm. target a 27-year-old that likes to buy shoes with a pink and they live in Sydney, but they like to engage with with what happens in mm. Tribeca, whatever. Mm. So it's kind of like this this idea. And for the first time, we're all even playing. So data, access to everyone, where it's an even playing field. 
And mm. now we go back to the idea. We talk about advertising and it's like, okay, advertising, it's clicks and things, but now it's actually, you know, awareness and what's your engagement. It's like mm. if you want someone's attention, that mm. is where the excitement is and that is where art comes in. Mm. And I think mm. that NFTs, for the first time, are starting to put value on someone's attention mm. on the digital world. It's really, really interesting from an anthropological perspective and a human cultural perspective. Art has always played such an important role in our culture as a species, as humans, whether it be carving patterns into um, seashells or trees or rock painting or whatnot, you know, and there's this evolution of the ways and the modalities by which we create that meaning. You would say NFTs are just another step in that meaning-making as humans, as a, as a species, and, and to stick with that theme of don't be... Don't be afraid of it. Just embrace it. It's just another modality of making meaning and deriving the value that we've always had for art and the ways we can speak about these almost metaphysical concepts. It's like those rock paintings. For most of us, we look at back at these Neolithic rock paintings in Siberia and we go, it doesn't mean anything to us. But you think about the importance culturally for, from the human perspective that these you know, that should be a sacred site. That place should be a place that we we protect for for eternity, you know, because it has such importance. And who's to say that these NFTs won't be the same way in 5,000 years' time? No, no, no. I think you're 100% right. I think it's talking about NFTs as that way that, you know, you talk about value. Imagine if you could share something on Instagram and whoever took the photo gets one yes, cent. Yes, yes. And I think that's where we're going, you know, where, where <sighs> this – you know, the disparity of wealth and these organizations oh, that yes. own it and social media, going right back to where we started social with the internet and yes. connection. It's like if NFT could actually, they could be the way that we actually, mm. we even out the disparity of wealth. So anything that gets shared from an artist, you can actually program into the code of an NFT that if I, so if I took a photo today and if I shared it in the code of the NFT, I could say anyone that shared this, Let's say seven seven point five percent goes to James forevermore. That's amazing. And that is decentralized. Yeah, that's a really cool thought. power. It's it is the start. Of it's the purely decentralizing and reclaiming what it is to be human, to create and share meaning with others. Right? I mean, it's taking the power away from the Facebooks of the world and the Instagrams, yeah, and putting it back in the hands of of people who have forever and eternity created meaning from stories, whether they be visual or oral storytelling or written storytelling. Ali, I know you're chomping at the pit, mate. Hey, why don't we just pivot quickly? What, t t tell us something no one knows about you. What, what's something that, because it is called The B-Side with James Barrow, it would be wrong of me not to ask you a question about what is something that people don't know about you? What is your B-Side, Ali? B-side? Well, you don't. It doesn't have to be a B-side. It doesn't have to be anything salacious or <sighs> provocative. Or I'd, I'd give it to you if I could think of it. <laughs> uh, uh, once upon a time, I was a lawyer. Do you know that? No, I don't. Well, you did say you studied. Uh, I studied economics and law. And law. At you university. were a lawyer. Yes. But this is the amazing thing. Most yes, photographers, it's a crime. And I tried to tease it out of you earlier on. I said, <laughs> not many people get to pursue their true passions. Yes. When was it that you realized that you didn't want to work in law? Uh, 28. All right. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I did, uh, well, it was, no, it was when I started working in law and I was like, shit, this was the backup plan. 
oh, what right. the hell? How did this end up happening? This way, you should never have a backup plan. Because <laughs> your backup plan comes true. Yeah, you should never yeah, burn your yeah, bridges. Yeah. Burn your bridges every time. Yeah. Fuck yeah. yeah. Just go for it. So that would be your advice. That's it. Advi- burn your bridges. Don't have a backup plan because you'll yeah. fall back on it. But yes, I fell back on law and I was like, oh no, if I was going to be a lawyer, I would have studied more. Mm. I would have mm. actually tried. But anyway, so. Yeah. What do you think about politics? You're a communicator now. Sure. And I wonder if you were to move into politics, do you think your photography would have served you better? Understanding or people, your law. Or your law. Yeah. Well, law's helped me in photography a lot. Oh, really? Economics and law have helped me in photography immensely. How, um, how so? Well, the number one thing is uh, taking photographs of someone. You know, like, so, for example, I shot a, I shot a book called Bondi Republic. It's just me walking around taking photographs of people in Bondi. Mm. And half the issue people ask me is like, well, did you get, um, did you get permission? Did you ask? And did you oh, talk right, to people? Really, yeah. and, I, and I sort of, you know, like, without an understanding of the law, you tend to be – and see, photography is all about access and photography is all about permission. Now, if you don't give yourself permission for whatever reason, maybe the understanding of the law or your so, so, social um, – whatever the gu- social guidelines you believe that you know need to live by, if you don't give yourself permission, you're not going to get the shot mm-hmm. or you're not going to get that shot. So for me, it's like understanding of the law was very helpful so for taking photographs on the street, which is basically the, you know, lights falling from the sun. Mm. Onto somewhere in a public place. I've got a camera. It's my camera. Um, you know, I can take whatever photos I like mm. all day long. And with that, with with understanding that permission and empowering, you know, giving myself that right, then I go about doing whatever I want to do. And if mm. and I'm often, you know, I'll ask people when I need to, but asking people sometimes ruins a shot. Yeah. So I'll go do the shot, take the shot, whatever, and then just be happy to deal with the conversation that later comes on. later. Yeah. Um, so that's definitely law. And then, um, yeah, economics is the same thing. I don't know why I asked you about politics. but um, Politics. I don't know about politics, but just the other day I was thinking uh, if I have a chance to ask a politician, I'd go like, why do you do this job just mm-hmm. out of interest? Yeah. Like what is the motivation behind it? Because um, – it just feels to me it like that's satisfying. Yeah, I don't want to get it too political. It's, it's only recently it's quite topical. We've had our prime minister bungle this deal with France with the submarines and so on. He's obviously come from a, a traditional political background. I know we dabbled in marketing for a bit, but I thought if you really understood people, if you really had a user-centered perspective of things, he would think about the way he responds to it in front of the media. And you go, if only more people had creative backgrounds who got into politics or were photographers or like, it just seems you've got a whole bunch of people who just, they're either corporate cucks or they're, they're developer lapdogs or they're, they're, they're these, these people who thrive in the world of the legalese and instead of actually seeing the human need to communicate and make meaning and give people meaning. You know, and it's kind of, it's funny. It's all, I don't know why I got into politics. So forgive me. I'll probably edit this out. But anyway. Yeah, it's all good. <laughs> but knows. you guys could be like, I, if Australia had more people like you leading the nation, I think we'd, we'd be in a much better place. That's probably where it came from. I'm already yeah. inspired, guys. Yeah. Yeah. So, so if, what's something that people may not know about you? Um, or what's your visa? Probably that I always wanted to get into politics. <laughs> <laughs> I sense that. Someone told me I was psychic. I sense something. I don't know why. We were, I sense it. This isn't meant to be. A, I'm going to edit this out because that's fucking nonsense. I don't know why. I don't know. Is that, is that, is that, is that, is that honestly true? It is, it is, is that honestly true? It is 100% wow. hand on heart true. Wow. Isn't that fantastic? I, I sense that. You'd be a friggin' great politician. You really would be. And you'd be a good one. 
You'd be like Jacinta you. in, in up, I'm, I'm a bit like Richard Branson. You know, I mix up my words. So I would be like, <laughs> you know, like I just, I just wouldn't be good in politics because it's really hard to, you know, in this day and age to, you know, get your words right. Mm. But I actually, oh, my goodness, I think, I, I think politics, you know, we said quantum physics is the next revolution. Maybe mm. it's actually politics. But it is so sad that you would not get into politics. Mm. And I think it's very sad that no one thinks yeah, it's, that they it's, it's, should get into, it, into politics because, you know, that's where it starts. Well, they say you shouldn't talk about politics and religion at the dinner table, right? Mm. And I've always wondered about that. And I was having a chat to my half-brother, um, Eric. Eric, shout out to Eric. He always has these Richard Dawkins-like responses to anyone who has any strong religious beliefs. And I'm a monotheist. I believe in a God. Can't bring myself to be an atheist. But I, I asked him, is it about religion or do you think that we've just held on to like an iPhone 3G version of religion and we've never updated it and it's been three, <laughs> 5,000 years. Do you think religion, if it was given an update and they could talk about metaphysical concepts, um, what did you say, quantum concepts, concepts of the mind and the spirit and the universe and the eternity between them, if they were talking about them in modern terms, do you think religion would be the same or do you think it would just be science? The thing about language, you know, so if someone said to me, do you believe in God? I said, yes, I believe in God, but mm. what's your definition? Mm. Like it's all mm. about definition and that's where we argue definitions. Do you believe in God? Yes. What do you think God is? I think God is life. Mm. Okay. What do you think life is? I think life is the Big Bang. Okay. Well, then the Big Bang equals life, so life equals God, so the Big Bang equals God. Like mm. whatever you believe is why you're here. Mm. That is your religion. You know, we get stuck in connotation and denotation. You know, we get stuck in what the language means. Yeah, the language. Yeah, yeah the, the ways language. We, and de well, yeah. just definition. I'm just like, I'm sick of arguing about the definition of things. Mm. So mm. it's kind of like, I think religion, you know, religion had its place. I think I've, as I've got older, society needs to be organized. Mm. You know, I, and, you know, I need to be organized. And I think mm. religion organized us. If we all, all agree that there is something beyond the physical experiences, if you call that religion or if you get that through religion or if you get that through belief or faith or whatever, what's wrong with that? You know, really, there's nothing. And I think that's proven, you know, like beyond mm. like whether mm. you talk at quantum or if you're actually, you know, putting uh, – if you're monitoring people's brainwaves and feelings, mm. we know that there are energies happening – that mm. we cannot see or hear or feel. There's something happening that we don't understand. Mm. If you call it quantum or spiritual or life force, like back to the definition, whatever you call it, there's mm. something that we don't understand and there's something that's happening. Anything that helps us to connect better and to mm. understand each other without judgment is mm. not a bad thing. We went into COVID being quite tribal. Whereas I think what's happened now, there's this sense of bipartisanship. And I think more and more people are going, give us solutions, guys. Give us good ideas. You know, it's funny that. And I wonder where that goes. Going through COVID, you're locked down, you're there, but you're connected. You know what's going, what's happening on a global le level. However, I was, you know, literally sharing toilet paper with my neighbour. You know, we were mowing their lawns and they were giving us toilet paper, uh, sharing food, talking to everyone, and then Sydney locked down, you know, for nine months in their 5K area. So mm. this idea of local and global 
you know, we used to talk about a lot, but I think that's the idea. We're technically connected globally. Mm. However, you live in your local area and you're connected to the people in your local area mm. and your neighbours. And yeah. I think that that, you know, talking to your neighbours more, t- talking to the people in your community more, mm. I think that's what should come out of COVID. However, we are connected globally through technology mm. and it's mm. that balance that I think we can nail and hopefully we take out of COVID. You hear stories about people um, who are almost moonlighting like a few jobs now because you can, because you're working from home. Who's to say that you're not creating like a little side hustle like I am? I don't do this during work hours, mind you. But but who's to say that I, w- I wasn't monetizing this and getting paid from company X whilst mm-hmm. working full-time at company Y remotely? Like that's a really – <laughs> I mean, it's a great idea. And if we're all outcomes focused, if you can do that and you can still create the outcomes, why not? Why can't you derive the most value out of you as a human being who is filled with creativity and innovation and agency? Why can't you determine your own fate and derive as much value you possibly can out of the energy that burns within you? And I think that's what it has allowed us to do. You know, you could even say, you know, the DAOs, you know, the decentralized autonomous organizations. You know, I think that's the rise of it. That's why, you know, the nine to five, you know, we started working nine to five because it was the industrial revolution and we were sitting in a factory and you had to, I pass you, you know. the. Can I jump in there? Do you think management is still, like you're a CMO for a lot of organizations, I think most organizations are better these days, but you've got management practices and leadership practices that see their staff and employees as they're the back office people who are part of the manufacturing section and you sit up in the offices in a glass box and you keep your eye on all the employees who are down there in the factory pick, picking, packing, uh, assembling, you know, and management seems to be still for a lot of organizations this top down micromanagement as opposed to leadership. I think a lot of businesses are like that, but they are not going to be the businesses that thrive mm-hmm. and getting the most out of people. You know, talk about being a CMO, you know, I have two staff and probably 15 freelancers or people I call upon to do things. And it's kind of like, the idea that you can actually, you know, they talk about, you know, talk about the brand or your yourself, what you can do as a person. And mm. I think it's like, you know, the the best businesses are ones that embrace that. The, the guys at Atlassian, you mm. know, you can't fault what they've done. And, you know, I've worked a lot in the past with Dom Price, who's, if you hear this, Dom, you know, he gives himself a different title every week. But I think he's like the futurist or, um, you know, it's talking about how do you empower people? Because you want people, you want the best work out of people. Mm. And what is that? You've got to feel inspired and connected. Mm. And you're not doing that if you're being dictated to and mm. what you need to do. Sure. And mm. I think that is the, the best thing that could come out of COVID. It's like mm. you can trust employees to work from home. Mm. And to yes, do their yes, job yes, and based yes. on I'm glad you brought it back there because we were going on a bit of a tangent. But that's really cool. I mean, that that's mm. the thing, right? I mean, it's proven to work. In the corporate world, we use the terms team. This is my team. Yeah. It's really a team. Trust them, you know. Let them work from home. But give them clear goals and responsibilities and give them clear out- outcomes that they need to try and achieve. And let's get on with it, you know. Can I interrupt from a COVID perspective? The COVID thing actually has made me totally a little bit pissed off, to be honest, because – I chose photography for the basis that I could work from home and do whatever I want and set my hours. And now 
all salary employees are able to do the same thing. It's wonderful. Lucky. That's the whole reason. Half the reason for leaving law was just like I couldn't stand going to the office every day and wearing a suit. But you could do the flip side. You could be a photographer full time and consult with regards to um, legal uh, <laughs> advice for <laughs> those together. in the creative industries, you know. <laughs> I've always said that I could, I can, I can take your wedding photographs and marry you. <laughs> I can do that. <laughs> I love that. That is so cool. That is so cool. Um, what? Just while we're on the topic of trends, let's do a like a quick uh, round of what are some of the th- trends? Um, and we'll start with you, Ali. What are some of the trends in your field that you're really excited Everyone's about? Everyone's shooting digital. Have you heard of that? iPhones? Oh, That's yeah. unbelievable. <laughs> um, trends. Be- beyond the NFTs that we've spent the whole of the episode talking no, about. No, I'll tell you a trend. A very interesting trend is that in cinema, uh, well, I'll tell you something very specific. Um, you can't buy 35 mil film at the moment. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, the stock of 35 mil film has run out because Why? it's become so popular. Because a 35 mil film is particularly a cinema format. Yeah, and yeah. this, uh, many directors are wanting, it's a, in the cinema world, it's a badge of craftsmanship to use shoot on film yeah. for both the actor and the director. Yeah. The studio doesn't actually care. It makes no financial difference to them at all, whether they yeah. shoot on film or they shoot on digital. Because if you shoot on digital, maybe you save a little bit, but then you spend it on grading. Where you shoot on film, you're kind of halfway there already. Directors are wanting to shoot on film a lot more. And then, and that's kind of having a, um, a beautiful flow on effect back to that digital film conversation in photography. And maybe, maybe um, some brands will start to realize that as, as a form of differentiation, uh, which is, you know, at the end of the day, what branding is all about, um, a way of creating uniqueness is to go back and shoot on film, but it would require a major shift from client perspective and so on. Mm-hmm. But it's being achieved in the film industry, which is, yeah. um, which is kind of, um, which is which sort of it sort of leads the way in a, in, in an interesting way because the film industry were the first to turn to digital. Yeah. Then yeah. photography turned to digital, and then we saw everything became mm. digital. And then the film industry is going back to film. Kodak went back. Kodak developed the first sensor. It was a, it was like a really bad business strategy that they had. Yeah, was they right, developed right, the right. sensor and actually caused their bankruptcy? And Kodak is a huge, was a huge company. Yeah, was a yeah. seriously huge company. Basically, all your cinema was shot on Kodak or Fuji, and Fuji doesn't make film anymore. And Kodak's been reinvented. It's called Kodak, but it's not. Eastman. Do you think, uh, and I'll pose this question from a fellow filmmaker's standpoint, there's a certain look to film and that look from the days of the Lumiere brothers right through to the films we watch now, and there's a certain expectation from the audience that it will have that look. And do you think now with 8K and everything else, that's not film, that's like hyper-reality, and I don't want hyper-reality. I want to be able to suspend disbelief. It's almost like seeing behind the curtain. I think when it gets too high-res and too full-on, there's almost like I don't need to see the every single pore on the face of, um, you know. Oh, uh, sure. So it looks like a video game. It starts to look like an overcrafted video game. I, I, you know what I mean? Like I, I like that film look. I like. I film was the first Photoshop. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> You know, the 8K thing is a... Like, don't get me wrong. I love it. I think there's a place for it. Like, yeah. I would love to watch a nature documentary in 8K. And But I think when it comes to visual storytelling, I don't need it to be 8K. 
I just need a really good story. The, the, the truth you know? of the matter is, is actually, it's really interesting because the choice for a cinematographer, or sorry, for a director in cinema to make film, to shoot on film, has nothing to do with the audience. Mm. They're not making that decision based on what would my audience like. No, they bad. don't care. What's the best way of conveying this story? Yeah. No, not even. She's like, well, how do I want to work? Uh-huh. How do I want to work? Oh, I like to work in this way. Why? So why, why is it that way? Why just, just, it, at, but for per- me, for me, like every single, and I'm an amateur filmmaker at best, every single decision I make is decided on the intent of even the move, the camera move. Like, why is the camera moving that way? How does that relate to the story? Like, like what, 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 what motivates the action? Is yeah, my, that's what, for sure camera movements. And, and why do I need it to be an 8K? Could I tell the story? And- 8K's got cropping reason. Yeah. No one no one displays in 8K. You know, it's all displayed yeah. in, in, in 2K or 4K maximum. Yeah. No, I'm 8K just saying, like, yeah. I'm, like, I'm just saying you're yeah. using 8K as the Yes, as a know, benchmark. As a benchmark, yeah. Um, look, my understanding of it is that people make the choice to shoot on film because they have an emotional connection to working in that way where you cannot, where you are committed to it, where it's precious. Do you think you're closer to the craft when you're shooting on film? Definitely people feel that way. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. I feel I separate my personal work and my commercial work by shooting on film for personal work and shooting on digital for commercial work. It's great to shoot on digital for commercial work because it's like, way to take the stress out. Why should I stress about a Commonwealth Bank shoot? I'll just shoot the hell out of it on digital. digital. We can all look at it. We can all be happy about it. See you later. Why should I, why should I bear that? Do you? Can I can I draw Can I draw parallels to the, I think we discussed the hospitality industry, but you know, a chef. Has a knife, sure. And the chef's knives are like the modern day samurais, right? They revere their knives, and you think about that. Chefs still to this day, time eternal, they still use the knife. Yes, they can pre-prepare things, and you can automate certain processes, and it probably tastes very similar. But you still have to know the art of the knife, and 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 you know, being able to wonderfully. You know what I mean? Like there's an art form there and that's what it's really about because it's culture as well as expression. You you know what's really interesting about that? On one hand, absolutely. You know, like I feel sad for photographers, photographers who pick up digital cameras and they've got really choice between Canon and Nikon and they're the same thing. Whereas when you go into film photography, you've got all these different types of cameras and they – all affect the process. You can connect. You really can connect to a camera just by the way it just clicks. The mechanical sound is so beautiful. On the other flip side of it is as a musician, you know, you need to be, you know, a good musician can pick up that piece of shit guitar yeah, yeah. and can make that yeah, sing. Yeah. And it just doesn't fucking matter. Yeah, yeah. And so there's the two things in parallel. You said hospitality in my eyes. Only because, I, I mean, the hospitality industry, I think, is very much like, you know, they're all artists. Everything we've spoken about, um, I think, is about the artist. And if you pick up a digital camera and take a photo, it will look amazing. Mm-hmm. You know, so everyone can take a good photo. Everyone mm-hmm. can make it look amazing. Everyone can put it through filters. Instagram at the start, it's like you put it through a filter, it looks amazing. Mm-hmm. So we've kind of, you know, it's through the time of tactics. Everyone can do that. And I think now it's like, okay, we know all the tricks. You know, we know the filters. We know you've got digital technology. We know the targeting. I think it's now. It's back to the idea and it's back Mm. to the art. And I think Uh, it's the time, you know, it's the renaissance for the artist. Okay, well, I'm going to pick you up on a concept. There's a school of thought that says ideas are entities. 
Ideas are living beings looking for means of survival. So the reason why humans have ideas is because that's the way it's like any um, parasite or COVID-19. And if you believe in the quantum, you have an idea and it's instantly passed on to other that's people. That's exactly it. We were the one species of sentient or primate that this species of idea beings could infect. And, and our role is to keep them alive and hence meaning That's making. a beautiful way to think about it. That's a beautiful way to think about it. <laughs> So I'm just going to leave you with that. I've always, look, on these podcasts, we always talk about a bite of wisdom. I'm going to start. Who wants to go first? If you could sum up your philosophy in a bite of wisdom, you know, a sentence, a meme, a T-shirt, an NFT, what would it be? i got a simple one. Go for it. Um, success is a moment in time. So whatever your measure of it is, today you are, tomorrow you're not, the next day you are. like it. So, that was a good sum up. I think it's every single moment you change into something else. So I just think that what you think today could be completely different tomorrow, and that tomorrow might be a second away from now. Well, James, you give me yours. Oh, gee whiz! I've never really quite been put on the spot. Um, I promised <laughs> Rebecca Yick that I would let her be the first one to put me on the spot, but um, I would say. Um, Oh, my, my bite of wisdom for people would be, uh, you mean something. You are valued. And no matter the mess you come from, there is always light. There is always a way out. But it will come through hard work. So grab it and go for it and never give up. That was unexpectedly perfect. Going from that, I would, I would honestly say that, well, I think what this conversation has proved is that we, we're all connected and you're in the present moment and the present moment can change in that present moment. But there's a really good parallel with the present moment can change in the present moment. I love that. No, but there's a really good parallel with how we've adapted. Like, throw COVID has thrown a massive span. If you'd like to find out more about me or the B Side podcast, please visit jamesbside.com. That's one word jamesbside.com and you can follow me on instagram at bsidepodcast if you have any suggestions or feedback on the show please email me at hello at jamesbside.com and don't forget to rate review and subscribe the b-side with james barrow is produced by me and i really hope it's helped unlock your creative potential thanks for listening and until next episode cheers <laughs>